Hey y'all, I'm back. At least it's not two months later when you have forgotten all about me and the story. I've been wanting to put these episodes out of order because the book time is out of order. But I think that would screw everybody up, including me. The timeline of this book is all kinds of wonky because Billy Pilgrim is unstuck in time. So, let's continue our read. You're listening to Damned. I'm your storyteller. And this is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. And so it goes. listen? Were you paying attention enough to know that that chapter didn't read right? It felt all wrong, didn't it? Till you got to the end of the chapter and we find out that Billy Pilgrim is unstuck in time. And then it makes a little bit more sense of why it felt like it was bouncing around. So I'll be back with chapter two very soon. Until then, you are listening to Damned. I'm your storyteller. And this concludes chapter one of Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Chapter two. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Billy has gone to sleep a senile widower and awakened on his wedding day. He has walked through the door in 1955 and come out in another one in 1941. He has gone back through that same door to find himself in 1963. He has seen his birth and his death many times. He says and pays visits to all events in between. He says, Billy is spastic in time. He has no control over where he's gonna go next and the trips aren't necessarily fun. He is in a constant state of stage fright, he said, because he never knows what part of his life he is going to have to act in next. Billy was born in 1922 in Elm, New York, the only child of a barber there. He was a funny-looking child who became a funny-looking youth, tall and weak, and shaped like the, bo- like the bottle of a Coca-Cola. He graduated from Elm High School in the upper third of his class, attended night sessions at the Elm School of Optometry for one semester before being drafted for military service in the Second World War. His father died in a hunting accident during the war. 
so it goes. Billy saw service with the infantry in Europe and was taken prisoner by the Germans. After his honorable discharge from the army in 1945, Billy again enrolled in the Ilium School of Optometry. During his senior year there, he became engaged to the daughter of the founder and the owner of the school, and then suffered a mild nervous collapse. He was treated at a veteran's hospital near Lake Placid and was given shock treatments and released. He married his fiancée, finished his education, and was set up in business in Ilium by his father-in-law. Ilium is a pretty good city for optometrists because General Forge and Foundry Company is there. Every employee is required to own a pair of safety glasses and to wear them in areas where manufacturing going on. GF&F has 68,000 employees on Ilium. That calls for a lot of lenses and a lot of frames. Frames are where the money is. Billy became rich. He had two children, Barbara and Robert. In time, his daughter Barbara married another optometrist, and Billy set him up in business. Billy's son Robert had a lot of trouble in high school, but he joined the famous Green Berets. He straightened out and became a fine young man and fought in Vietnam. Early in 1968, a group of optometrists, with Billy among them, chartered an airplane to fly from Ilium to the International Convention of Optometrists in Montreal. The plane crashed at the top of Sugarbush Mountain in Vermont. Everyone was killed but Billy. So it goes. While Billy was recuperating in a hospital in Vermont, his wife died accidentally of carbon monoxide poison. So it goes. When Billy finally was got home to Ilium after the airplane crash, he was quiet for a while. He had a terrible scar across his skull. He didn't resume practice. He had housekeeper, and his daughter came, off, came over almost every day. And then, without warning, Billy went to New York City, got on the all-night radio program devoted to talk. He told about having come unstuck in time. He said, too, that he had been kidnapped by a flying saucer in 1967. The saucer was... He was taken to Tralfamador, where he was displayed naked in a zoo, he said. He was mated there with a former earthling movie star named Montana Wildhack. Some of the night owls in Ilium heard Billy on the radio, and one of them called Billy's daughter Barbara. Barbara was upset. She and her husband went down to New York and brought Billy home. Billy insisted mildly that everything he had said on the radio had been true. 
He said he had been kidnapped by the Trifamidorians on the night of his daughter's wedding. He hadn't been missed, he said, because the Trifamidorians had taken him through a time warp so that he could be on Trifamidor for years and still be away from Earth for only a microsecond. Another month went by without incident. And then Billy wrote a letter to the Ilium newsletter, which the paper published. It described the creatures from Trofamador. The letter said they were two little, two feet high, green, and shaped like a plumber's friend. Their suction cups were on the ground, and their shafts were extremely flexible and usually pointed towards the sky. At the top of each shaft was a little hand with a green eye in its palm. The creatures were friendly. They could see in four dimensions. They pitied earthlings for being able to only see three. They had so many wonderful things to teach the earthlings, especially about time. Billy promised to tell them all those wonderful things in his next letter. He was working on his second letter when the first letter was published. The second letter started out like this. The most important thing I learned on Trofamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He is still very much alive in the past. So it is silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future always have existed and will always exist. The Trifamidors can look at all the different moments just the way, the way we can see the stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all moments are. They can look at any moment that interests them. It is just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another like a beads on string, that once a moment is gone, it is gone forever. When a trifamidor sees a corpse, all he thinks is the dead person is in bad condition at that particular moment, but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I am myself, when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say the Trifamidors say about dead people, which is, so it goes, and so on. Billy was working on this letter when the basement rumpus room of his empty room. He was his house, it was his housekeeper's day off. There was an old typewriter in the rumpus room. It was a beast. It weighed much as a storage battery. Billy couldn't carry it very far, very easily, which is why he was writing in the rumpus room instead of somewhere else. The oil burner had quit. A mouse had eaten through the insulation of the wire leading into the thermostat. The temperature in the house was down to 50 degrees, but Billy hadn't noticed. He wasn't warmly dressed either. He was barefoot, still in his pajamas and bathrobe. And though it was late afternoon, his bare feet were blue and ivory. 
The cockles of Billy's heart, at any rate, were growing, glowing coals, which made him them so hot was Billy's relief that he was going to comfort so many people with the truth about time. And his door chimes upstairs had been ringing and ringing. It was his daughter Barbara up there, wanting in. Now she let herself in with the key, crossed the floor over his head, calling, Father? Daddy? Where are you? And so on. Billy didn't answer her, so she nearly was hysterical, expecting to find his corpse. And then she looked into the very last place there was to look which was the rumpus room. Why didn't you answer me when I called? Barbara wanted to know, standing there in the door of the rumpus room. She had the afternoon paper with her, the one in which Billy described his friends from Trafamador. I didn't hear you, said Billy. The orchestration of the moment was this. Barbara was only 21 years old, but she thought her father was senile, even though he was only 46. Senile because of the damage to his brain in airplane crash. She also thought that she was head of the family, since she had to manage her mother's funeral, since she had to get the housekeeper for Billy and all that. Also, Barbara and her husband were having to look after Billy's business interests which were considerable, since Billy didn't seem to give a damn for business much. Which made her a bitchy flibberdigit. And Billy, meanwhile, was trying to hang on to his dignity to persuade Barbara and everybody else that he was far from senile, that on the contrary, he was devoting himself to a calling much higher than mere business. He was doing nothing less now, he thought, than prescribing corrective lenses for the earthling souls. So many of these souls were lost and wretched, Billy believed, because they could not see as well as his little green friends on Trophamador. Don't lie to me, father, Barbara said. I know perfectly well that you heard me when I called. This was a fairly pretty girl, except she had legs like an Edwardian grand piano. Now she raised hell with him about the letter in the paper. She said he was making a laughing stock of himself and everybody associated with him. Father, 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 said Barbara. What are we going to do with you? Are you going to force us to put you where your mother is? Billy's mother is still alive. She was in bed at an old people's home called Pine Knoll on the edge of Ilium. What is it about my letter that makes you so mad? Billy wanted to know. Because it's crazy. None of it is true. All of it is true, 
Billy's anger was not going to rise with hers. He never got angry at anything. He was wonderful in that way. There is no such planet as Trafamador. It can't be detected from Earth, if that's what you mean, said Billy. Earth can't be detected from Trafamador, as far as that goes. They're both very small, and they're both very far apart. Where did you get a crazy name like Trafamador? That's what the creatures who live there call it. Oh, my God, said Barbara, and she turned her back on him. She celebrated frustration by clapping her hands. May I ask you a simple question? Of course. Why is it you never mentioned any of this before the plane crash? Well, I, I didn't think the time was right. And so on. Billy says he first came unstuck in time in 1944, long before his trip to Trafamador. The Trafamadors didn't have anything to do with his coming unstuck. They were simply able to give him insights into what was really going on. Billy first came unstuck while World War II was in progress. Billy was a chaplain's assistant in the war customarily a figure of fun in the American army, and Billy was no exception. He was powerless to harm the enemy or to help his friends. In fact, well, he had no friends. He was a valet to a preacher, expected no promotions or medals, bore no arms, and had a meek faith in the loving Jesus, which most soldiers found pure Putrid. While on maneuvers in South Carolina, Billy played hymns he knew from his childhood, played them on a little black organ which was waterproof. It had 39 keys and two stops, Vox Humana and Vox Celeste. Billy also was in charge of the por portable altar. It was an olive drab attache case with telescoping legs. It was lined with crimson plush and nestled in that passionate plush was two anodized aluminum cross and a Bible. The altar and the organ were made by a, a vacuum cleaner company in Camden, New Jersey and said so. One time on maneuvers, Billy was playing A Mighty Fortress Is Our God with music by Johann Sebastian Bach and the words by Martin Luther. It was a Sunday morning. Billy and his chaplain had gathered a congregation of about 50 soldiers on a Carolina hillside. An umpire appeared. There were umpires everywhere. Men who said who was winning or losing the, the theoretical battle, who was alive and who was dead. The, the empire had come. The empire had comical news. The congregation had been theoretic, theoretically spotted from the air by a theoretical enemy, and they were all theoretically dead. The theoretical theoretical corpses laughed 
and ate a hearty noontime meal. Remembering this incident years later, Billy was struck by what a trifamador adventure with death had been. To be dead and eat at the same time. Towards the end of maneuvers, Billy was given an emergency furlough home because his father, a barber in Ilium, New York, was shot dead by a friend while they were out hunting deer. So it goes. When Billy got back from his furlough, there were orders for him to go overseas. He needed he was needed in the headquarters company of an infantry regiment fighting in Luxembourg. His regimental chaplain assistant had been killed in action. So it goes. When Billy joined the regiment, it was in the process of being destroyed by the Germans in the famous Battle of the Bulge. Billy never even got to meet the chaplain he was supposed to assist. Was never even issued a steel helmet or combat boots. This was the December of 1944, during the last mighty German attack of the war. Billy survived, but he was a dazed wanderer far from the new German lines. Three other wanderers, not quite so dazed, allowed Billy to tag along. Two of them were scouts and one of them was an anti-tank gunner. They were without food or maps, avoiding Germans, they were delivering themselves to the rural silences ever more profound. They ate snow. They went Indian file. First came the scouts, clever, graceful, quiet. They had rifles. Next came the anti-take gunner, clumsy and dense, warning Germans away with a Colt 45 automatic in one hand and a trench knife in the other. Last came Billy Pilgrim, empty-handed, bleakly ready for death. Billy was preposterous, six feet, three inches tall, with chest and soldiers like a box of kitchen matches. He had no helmet, no overcoat, no weapon, and no shoes. On his feet were cheap, low-cut civilian shoes, which he had bought for his father's funeral. Billy had lost a heel, which made him bob up and down, up and down, the involuntary dancing up and down, up and down, it made his hip joints hurt. Billy was wearing a thin field jacket, a shirt, and trousers of scratchy wool, and long underwear that was soaked with sweat. He was the only one of the four who had a beard. It was a random bristly beard. Some of the bristles were white, even though Billy was only 21 years old. He was also going bald. Wind and cold and violent exercise had turned his face crimson. He didn't look like a soldier at all. He looked like a filthy flamingo.
and on the third day of wandering, somebody shot at the four from far away, shot four times as they crossed a narrow brick road. One shot was for the scouts, the next one was for the anti-take gunner, whose name was Ronald Weary. The third bullet was for the filthy flamingo, who had stopped dead center in the road when the lethal bee buzzed past his ear. Billy stood there politely, giving his marksman another chance, which was his addled understanding of the rules of warfare that the marksman should be given a second chance. The next shot missed Billy's kneecaps by inches. It was going end on end and from the sound of it. Roland Weary and the scouts were safe in a ditch and Weary growled at Billy. Get out of the road, you dumb motherfucker! The last word was still a novelty in the speech of white people in 1944. It was fresh and astonishing to Billy, who had never fucked anybody. And it did its job. It woke him up and got him off the road. Saved your life again, you dumb bastard, Weary said to Billy in the ditch. He had been saving Billy's life for days, cursing at him, kicking him, slapping him, making him move. It was absolutely necessary that cruelty be used because Billy wouldn't do anything to save himself. Billy wanted to quit. He was cold, hungry, embarrassed, incompetent. He, He could scarcely distinguish between sleep and wakefulness now. On the third day, he found no important differences either between walking and standing still. He wished everybody would just leave him alone. You guys, just go on without me, he said again and again. Weary was as new to war as Billy. He was a replacement too, as part of a gun crew. He had helped fire one of the first shot in anger from a 57mm anti-tank gun. The gun made a ripping sound like the opening of the zipper on the fly of the God Almighty. The gun lapped up some snow and vegetation with a blowtorch 30 feet long. The flame left a black arrow on the ground showing the Germans exactly where the gun was hitting, hidden, and the shot was a miss. What we had missed was a tiger tank. It swiveled it, its 88 millimeter snout around sniffingly and saw the arrow on the ground. It fired, so it killed everybody on the gun crew but weary. So it goes. Ronald Reary was only 18, was at the end of an unhappy childhood spent mostly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He had been unpopular in Pittsburgh. He had been unpopular because he was stupid and fat and mean and smelled like bacon no matter how much he washed. 
He was always being ditched in Pittsburgh by people who didn't want him to come with him. It made Weary sick to be ditched. When Weary was ditched, he would find someone else who was even more unpopular than himself, and he would horse around with that person for a while, pretending to be friendly, and then he would find some pretext for beating the shit out of him. It was a pattern. It was a crazy, sexy, murderous relationship Weary entered into with the people he eventually beat up. He told them about his father's collection of guns and swords and torture instruments and leg irons and so on. Weary's father, who was a plumber, actually did collect such things, and his collection was insured for $4,000. He wasn't alone. He belonged to a big club composed of people who collected things like that. Weary's father once gave Weary's mother a Spanish thumbscrew in working condition for a kitchen paperweight. The other time he gave her a table lamp whose base was a model one foot high of the famous Iron Maiden of Nuremberg. The real Iron Maiden was a medieval torture instrument, sort of a boiler which was shaped like a woman on the outside and lined with spikes. The front of the woman was composed of two hinged doors. The idea was to put the criminal inside and close the door slowly. There would be two special spikes on his where his eyes would be. There was a drain at the bottom to let out all the blood. So it goes. Weary had told Billy Pilgrim about the Iron Maiden, about the drain in her bottom, and what it was used for. He talked to Billy about dum-dums. He told him about his father's Derringer pistol, which could be carried in a vest pocket, which was yet capable of making a hole in a man, which you could put a bull bat could fly through without touching either wing. Weary scornfully bet Billy one time that he didn't even know what a blood gunner was. Billy guessed it was the drain in the bottom of the Iron Maiden, but that was wrong. The blood gutter, Billy learned, was a shallow groove in the side of the blade of a sword or bayonet. Weary told Billy about other neat tortures he'd read about or seen in the movies or heard on the radio. About other neat tortures he made himself that he invented. One of the inventions was sticking a dentist drill into a guy's ear. He asked Billy what he thought was the worst form of execution was. Billy had no opinion. But... The correct answer turned out to be this. You stake a guy out on an anthill in the desert sea, and he's facing upward, and you put honey all over his balls and peckers, and you cut off his eyelids so he has to stare in the sun till he dies. So it goes. Now, lying in the ditch with Billy and the scouts after having been shot at Weary made Billy 
take a very close look at his trench knife. It wasn't government issue. It was a present from his father. It had a 10-inch blade that was triangular in cross-section. Its grip consisted of brass knuckles, was a chain of rings through which Weary slipped his stubby fingers. The rings weren't simple. They were bristled with spikes. Weary laid the spikes along Billy's cheek and browled his cheek with savage affection. How would you like to be hit with these? Hmm. Hmm. He wanted to know. I wouldn't, said Billy. Do you know why the blade's triangular? No. Makes a wound that won't close up. Oh. Makes a three-sided hole in a guy. You stick an ordinary knife in a guy, makes a slit, right? Slit closes up. Right? Right. Shit. What do you know? What the hell did they teach you in college? I wasn't there very long, said Billy. Which was true. He only had six months of college. And the college hadn't been a regular college either. It had been a night school of the Ilium School of Optometry. Joe College, said Weary, scathingly. Billy shrugged. There's more to life than what you read in books, said Weary. You'll find out. Billy made no reply to this either. There, in the ditch, since he didn't want a conversation to go on any longer than necessary. He was dimly tempted to say that, though he knew a thing or two about gore. Billy, after all, had contemplated tortures and hideous wounds at the beginning and at the end of nearly every day of his childhood. Billy had an extremely gruesome crucifix hanging on the wall of his little bedroom in Ilium. A military surgeon would have admired the clinical fidelity of the artist's rendition of Christ's wounds. The spear wound, the thorn wounds, the holes that were made by the iron spikes. Billy's Christ died horribly. It was pitiful. So it goes. Did you pay attention? Do you have the timeline in your head yet? Because we know that time in this is not linear. You are listening to Damned. I am your storyteller. And this is Slaughterhouse 5 by Kurt Vonnegut.